Welcome to In the Trenches, the podcast of the Michigan Freedom Fund. Here's your host, Tony Daunt. Greetings and welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Tony Daunt of the Michigan Freedom Fund podcast, In the Trenches. This uh, episode, we've got a couple of great guests. We have uh, Beth Deshone, Executive Director of the Great Lakes Education Project, and uh, Greg McNeely, a board member of both Michigan Freedom Fund and Great Lakes Education Project, and uh, had both of them on back at the beginning of the year where we uh, kind of offered reaction to the governor's state of the state and what we expected to happen throughout 2020. I think um, none of us would have expected uh, to be here with everything that's transpired over these last uh, 11 and a half months since that time. But um, I guess, you know, as, as we move in with, I can't resist the dad pun of, uh, you know, the theme of this podcast this uh, in December here being hindsight is 2020. Why don't uh, we each take a moment and give one word that describes in your mind 2020 and I guess try to keep it uh, rated PG if you can. So why don't we give, uh, why don't we start with you, Beth? What do you think? Lost. That's a good one. Greg? Yeah, well said, Beth. Uh, locked down as one word. Okay, and I, I, me, I'm going to go with exhausting. So um, I think that they were all PG. I would say they probably wasn't much positivity there. Um, but I, I think, you know, in light of everything that's transpired, uh, you know, there's, there's a reason for that. And, um, you know, Greg, you, you mentioned lockdown. And obviously, um, we've had numerous um, go-rounds of, of being locked down, of shutdowns. And, uh, you know, curious on your thoughts, um, you know, why that word came to mind? What, what, why was that the first thing you thought of? What kind of impact has this had on our state? Well, obviously I'm referring to the, the whole environment that we find ourselves in where through government, state government, fiat, uh, our citizens and our businesses find themselves literally locked down along with our, our students. I don't think we've seen a, uh, a year since maybe the 19, early uh, 1930s that uh, government has done more to screw over its citizens in America than we have in, in this year. Back then it was the federal government, this year it's the state of Michigan and, and many of the, the other state governments. It's, it's been sad to see. Now, in spite of all that, I'll tell you, our, our people, our families are quite resilient and we've got a lot to celebrate because I think we've demonstrated how resilient and resourceful we are, but we deserve a government that's better uh, because this government has, has definitely tried to um, Give us the bohica, as they say, keeping it PG. I love it. I, phrase from the past of uh, <laughs> that, uh, always good to hear. Um, you mentioned both um, business and, and students in school. And so, you know, Beth, I think that's certainly in your neck of the woods, your bailiwick in terms of education and how this has impacted children. And each of us here on this podcast um, have children of our own, uh, some a little bit older than others, but certainly in some fashion, all in, in school, um, whether that be in, in, in preschool or in grade school. And it's been a challenge. Um, and I would say, you know, the three of us are, you know, 
thankfully very blessed in terms of our ability to continue working without interruption and ability to be at home for our children while they're going to school remotely and to offer that continued guidance. Beth, what are your, you know, what do you get the sense of from folks you talk to about how those who are not quite as fortunate have been handling this and some of the extra challenges it's brought to them and what kind of, um, you know, concerns are there long-term for this? Well, I think that's why I chose the word lost. It's, you know, it's lost learning, it's lost opportunity, it's lost hope, um, it's lost relationships. And it's lost sleep for all of us that are parents um, that are juggling, like you said, Tony, not only the day-to-day job that we have as professionals, um, but also having to school our children in a capacity that that none of us were trained to do. Um, so there's just been a lot of a lot of loss. Um, you know, my from day one in March, my anxiety level has been through the roof for our most vulnerable students. And, you know, those of us here, and I I pray that many that listen are in fortunate situations where they're providing um, the comfort, both socially, emotionally, mentally, and academically to support their students. But for many families, they have to make the choice to go to a job to put food on their table. And that's time away from helping their students, which then perpetuates that achievement gap for our low income and frankly, for our minority students um, who who tend to be slightly more disadvantaged in the classroom to start. So long-term, I think the impacts are going to be felt for a very long time and they're not going to be good. And this will do nothing but exacerbate the already existing problems in our education system if we don't start to step up and use our parent voice to demand action. Tony, if I could jump in before your next question, just to, to piggyback Absolutely. on something that Beth said, uh, um, because I think it's really important. The, the choices our government has made regarding these lockdowns had a lot of very obvious um, outcomes. We knew that it would lead to deaths of despair, uh, an increase in deaths of despair. We knew it would lead to isolation. We knew it would lead to greater domestic violence. Um, we know that it would have a disparate impact as Beth was just describing. We knew this back in late February and March when this was being compl- uh, contemplated. When you think about that for a minute, and, and I don't subscribe to disparate impact theory, but I think it raises a lot of interesting and valuable questions that we ought to be asking ourselves in the realm of public policy. And those that imposed lockdowns that had a disparate impact upon the minority community uh, and those of different classes, um, I think we, we have to, with great sobriety, ask ourselves whether or not that's racist. And are the proponents of those policies racist sympathizers? I mean, this is just being logically consistent with the narrative and theories that we hear in circulation. So, I mean, we have real world damage where we know that, that kids are being abused at home right now and who you do not have a school that they're going to that would be its first line of reporting and therefore finding resolution and solution. And those are lives that are being damaged and as Beth says, lost. I mean, the, the gen COVID is, a, is gonna be a damaged and lost generation because of these choices state policymakers made. And it didn't have to be that way. This was a choice. That's an, an excellent point. And it was kind of leading into, um, you know, leads into a bit of, of where I wanted to go with this next question of, of the choices. And, um, you know, 
through throughout this, um, you know, we were we were very clear at the at the outset, as most people were. Um, didn't know much about this. Didn't know where things were going. Let's protect the vulnerable. Let's protect um, our healthcare system. Get a couple of weeks to to you know flatten the curve as as it was. And I think everybody, almost everybody, was on board with that. And unfortunately, that kind of trans transformed into let's make sure we don't have any circulation of the virus at all, and an unattainable goal leading to a lot of the very problems you have just laid out and that Beth has laid out, um, secondary problems from, from these choices. Um, the governor you know, throughout this has, and her team, it's about the science and the data and uh, they use it very much as a bludgeon on people who want to push back or who disagree or who have point to alternative um, interpretations of the science and the data. And in fact, just last week, I think it was, the Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist made a statement that, well, you know, we're not really relying on the metrics for restaurants and these closures. It's, it's whether or not people are following the appropriate safety protocols. And so it's like, well, is it safety and data or is it your feeling? It can't be both. And so, you know, that, that science and that data, there's a lot of science and data out there that schools are not, it's not necessary to even shut them down. They're not a hotspot for this virus, but, but why? why? Why do we continue to do it? What, what do you think is, is the leading edge of that? Well, I, I hate to guess if, if, if folks' motivations uh, unless they've articulated them. Um, but I, I do think in general with the left, and, and I'll give you my most charitable uh, disposition on that, which is I think many of them find that you know, government is their religion, uh, the civic space is their religion, and, and they feel a higher purpose, uh, meaning, and uh, a bit of a savior complex in trying to save people from themselves. That's a very charitable take uh, of, of what I would um, otherwise think, but I'll leave it at that since um, uh, I, don't, I don't have data to back up what my, what my gut uh, would respond with. Fair enough, that is quite charitable. I didn't expect that from you. Um, <laughs> it's the holiday season. Beth, anything to add to that on, on your thoughts or what, what you've learned in discussions with, with legislators or other, other parents who, who want their children back in school? Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, an increasing amount of science and data that says schools are safe. Look at the studies coming out of Europe. Look at even Dr. Fauci last week himself reiterated, maybe we made a mistake. <laughs> Kids really are safer in school and we're not seeing the spread we thought we were going to see. Um, and I apologize, I can't remember the name of, of, of the, the study, but someone actually looked to, to see that states that are making these decisions or local communities that are making these decisions to close schools down have a much higher percentage of population that support um, the left in, in that vantage point. So um, I don't think it's a far cry to say that this is somewhat politically motivated um, and back that up with some of the evidence in that study. And at the end of the day, I mean, what I'm seeing in my parent circles and here in my community where my kids are, a big number of the teachers are desperate to get back in the classroom for all the reasons we talked about at the first question. They know the damage this is doing. Um, 
what what I think we need to crack the nut on is how do we advocate for that parent voice to become a little stronger. We're very comfortable talking in our own circles because it's our safety net, but we need to elevate that voice in a broader fashion um, so that policymakers truly understand the impact that this is having and aren't just making you know top line political decisions. That's an excellent point. And it's one thing for, for Tony Daunt or Beth Deshaun or Greg McNeely or, or any number of people active here in, in, in the process, policymakers across the board to say these things. But when you have, uh, I think we'll all recognize that if a, a, a you know, meeting full of parents who are upset that their kids are not getting the education they deserve is going to have a much greater impact on the school board and the superintendent and the teachers than, than any one of us saying anything. And, um, you know, it, it, it also kind of leads to this, you know, obviously back in the, in the early fall, I think it was, you know, this, this year has just kind of rolled, it's just been one giant blob of a month at times, it seems, but the Supreme Court, Michigan Supreme Court ruled that the, the governor's executive, she was exceeding her executive authority on, on these various orders and lockdowns. And yet here we are in December and we're getting the same thing. It's just through a different through a different statute or through a different entity that reports to this governor. Um, you know, what can the legislature be doing to to force the governor's hand? Is there anything they can do? Is is this governor just so set on her way or the highway that there's there's nothing that can be done? Or or is there some advice we can lend to the legislature as this let leads into the next year, which it's not certainly not just gonna end because the calendar flips to January 1, 2021, um, so that we can get some better choices made from, from our government leaders. Well, I don't think there's much you can do with, with the governor, but just because I think you're, you're dealing with somebody that has quite a substantial defect of character. Uh, I mean, look, look at the 49 cent gas tax of which she so stubbornly uh, pushed for over 12 months and yet to date it still won't admit was a mistake and still has provided no other solution to fix our roads. So in between all her campaigning and inaugural committee uh, co-chairing, uh, instead of focusing on the virus and what she's doing all those politics, she let our roads get worse. You know, she could, instead of uh, campaigning, she could have been uh, spending time trying to fix our roads. Anyways, the digression on that was because that was the policy that allegedly she was supposed to fix. She failed, and she failed because she was stubborn and refused to engage in a dialogue. Now, the stakes weren't as high. Now that she has seized absolute power, I don't think there's anything the legislature can really do um, without uh, uh, doing so at, at, at peril to the rest of us. I mean, they, they might be principally right, but but you know they should keep the government running and do the things necessary uh, to sort of tap the flywheel of, of government and, and keep things uh, until we're on the other side of this. And then it needs to be addressed at the ballot box. And you know, there's still out there that that um, petition drive um, of uh, you know getting rid of that 1945 law, and you know because of the Supreme Court decision. Uh, it's, it hasn't had the urgency as many thought at the outset when they turned the petitions in and obviously um, the Secretary of State uh, and her office were intent on dragging their feet in the hopes they could uh, secure a House majority and not have to worry about that, uh, that uh, you know, happening. Um, obviously that didn't happen. Republicans came back with 58 seats and, and I imagine it will be on, on 
their plate at some point next year, which will be nice. Will be another ability to show that the legislature wants to work with this governor. They just haven't been given that opportunity or that been brought into the fold. Every time they extend a hand, it's swatted away. Um, so, you know, as, as I mentioned, um, just the, you know, my word was exhaustion. And I think it's because of this never ending um, battle of back and forth between uh, this governor and, and the people of the state where the science and the data does not back up what they're doing. It's, it's not necessary to keep these schools closed. The restaurant and lodging industry, for instance, has taken great steps to do things right for capacity and how they serve people. And yet they continue to have that, that knee on their back from this governor and her administration. And so that exhaustion of continually having these battles and having to point these things out is, is really, um, I think, taking a toll, not just on me, that's not what matters, but on the people who are working so hard to keep their business alive, to, to do their jobs, to earn a paycheck, to put food on people's table. And so I'm hopeful that 2021 will see some change in that. Um, what, you know, as, as, we, as we end 2020 and head into 2021, what do you see in light of this, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, the, 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 the vaccine and, and, you know, it seems like maybe cases are plateauing now in this latest surge. What do you see as hopeful for 2021? Um, we'll start with you, Beth. Um, well, again, I, I think, you know, that that light of the vaccine is is offering um, comfort to a lot of people. And, you know, I think of my parents who are older and, and clearly uh, being extremely cautious about what they're doing. And so it brings them hope. Um, you know, I, I would advocate that we strongly need to consider teachers as essential workers and that they, they need to be towards the, the front, um, not at the front, but towards the front. Because again, the faster we get children back in classrooms um, and, and provide peace of mind to the adults in those buildings uh, with this vaccine, the, the better off we're gonna be towards recouping this lost learning um, that we know is going to take a huge amount of time. Um, and I would say from the policymaker standpoint or legislative side is frankly, a lot of this is probably communications and PR related. And you know, the, the Republican message can be on the side of parents. It can be on the side of angels in this fight. Um, to, to ensure that families and business owners, um, you know, and everyone around this state knows that they've got their back um, and that, that they're doing everything they can to fight this one person who's made these, uh, you know, unilateral decisions. Um, and, and hopefully that will translate into greater success. Well, well said, Beth. Um, I think additionally, there's something that's interesting that, that's happened, and, and usually it's best for our country when, when people are less engaged in government, because that means government doesn't matter as much. And the less government matters, the more our country flourishes, the happier people are, and the better educated children generally become. Um, however, given that the incompetence and uh, mismanagement and lack of 
uh, serious thinking that currently leads our, our state government. I think the hyper engagement and uh, vigilant attention that people are giving the state of Michigan's government is a positive and that hopefully we can leverage that for some positive change, change that welcomes uh, conversations and debates, does so civilly, um, but does so based on first principles and resists any sort of, you know, big government attempt to sort of reset our way of life. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a way that we move forward and it's incrementally and it's by degree and it's through debate. It's not by fiat or the despotism of one dictator. Well, I, I completely agree on, on both of those counts. And, and I think my hope is, is that with, with 2021, um, when, when the legislature comes back in, um, you know, there, there can be a reset and, um, you know, not, you know, obviously Speaker Chatfield and Senate Majority Leader Shirky have repeatedly tried to reach out and, and, and provide suggestions and solutions and ask to be part of these discussions. And as I mentioned earlier, repeatedly swatted away. But, um, you know, maybe with, with a, a change in the calendar, that the governor can reconsider um, this this attitude in the way things have been done, and uh, have a little bit more collaboration. Now, I'm I'm hopeful for that. I don't know if I expect that in any way, but um, you know, I, I I I think there needs to be some some sense of normalcy we get back to because there are numerous problems still facing this state that need to be addressed. You know, Greg, you mentioned. Uh, the issue of the roads. And as you said, they're, they're certainly not getting any better. Um, you know, the only thing we've had thus far in terms of a road plan from this governor, aside from that ridiculous gas tax increase, was taking on three and a half billion dollars worth of debt through bonding. And that seems, you know, that type of stuff is is lost in, in the chaos and the noise of, of everything else related to this pandemic. And so, um, you know, I, I think there are several things that the legislature could make as priorities moving forward. Um, curious if either of you have any thoughts on what some of those should be um, when they come back and, and start putting things on this governor's desk. I think one area that hopefully they can agree to continue to make some um, significant progress on is criminal justice reform. Uh, they've had some bipartisan agreement on that in the past. Republicans have led nationally and in Lansing on this issue. Um, I think it also dove tails into licensure reform, where so many people that are coming out of uh, our prison system that have not been able to get in through a, a traditional employment line because the, the, you know, the box of have you been convicted uh, sort of expels them from the employment line because the algorithm won't let them get any further in the application process. Many of those folks become entrepreneurs. And they look to becoming nail techs or opening a, a hair or barber salon, or they want to be a drywaller or a painter. All of these things require uh, a license from the state government that is often um, more difficult to obtain uh, than, than it need be. And removing those barriers so that uh, folks can earn a livelihood, support themselves and thrive is, um, is an important uh, social justice issue that we need to pursue. Great point. If we want people earning earning a living and, and, and contributing to the tax base and, and having just that 
um, you know, that, that pride that comes with, with work and ownership of something, um, very important that we, that we continue with the reforms that have been done because um, keeping people, I think the, the, the data shows keeping people out of the workforce simply encourages them back into the old ways, which led them down the wrong path and into trouble in the first place. A, a job has been proven to be the best way to uh, help people that are struggling with addiction stay uh, stay clean. It's been the best way to prove people that are having um, other addiction problems, uh, keep on the straight and narrow. And it is the number one uh, indi indicator of somebody's um, likelihood to stay out of the prison system, uh, the recidivism rate once they've uh, participated in it. So I mean, a job is um, the number one social works program, uh, second only to the family. And, and Beth, you know, I think leading to that is, you know, school and education and what is, you know, what is on tap to help keep you know, get people properly educated and whether that's a college track or a, a vocational track, um, you know, again, a lot of these things have kind of fallen by the wayside as, as they've been dealing with the pandemic and, and in many ways locked out of any kind of discussions with this governor and other items. Um, what do you see as, as being some things at the top of the list that, that could be done or should be done uh, heading into the new year here? Um, yeah, I would say that probably number one is the expansion of school choice opportunities. And that's a very broad umbrella for things like, um, you know, course choice access, transportation scholarships to go to the school of your choice, um, education savings accounts, 529s, the list could go on and on, but opportunities to continue to peel back the barriers that prohibit families from finding the education that meets the needs of their unique student um, would be front and center foremost. And while this may be pie in the sky under this administration, I think that this pandemic has completely shown a light on the deficiencies of our current system. And that now is the time to ensure we pivot towards a competency-based education where time is a variable, not the dictator of what happens, and that we provide foundational building blocks of knowledge before children move forward to the next concept. And they prove that through competency, whether it's a, a quiz, a test, a, an assignment of some sort. Um, but the, this pandemic is going to expose ma massive um, knowledge gaps and learning gaps for these kids. And the only way I think we'll be able to recoup that and save this generation is by pivoting to competency-based education. So something on, on my mind right now is, um, you know, I've, tomorrow, I believe, tomorrow's the 11th, uh, will be the eight year anniversary of Governor Snyder's signature on the right to work or freedom to work legislation. And I, you know, I think that certainly was transformative for this state um, from, from, a, from a job creation standpoint, but even more importantly, from a just freedom of speech and assembly and association standpoint and giving people that agency to do with their paycheck what they see best fit for them. Um, so, you know, that as, as the Michigan Freedom Fund, obviously that, that stands out to me as something um, to, to celebrate over the rest of this week. And it, it also kind of brings to mind the idea of, you know, what, 
what is out there? What, what can groups like us or the people who listen to this, um, what's something transformative that we should be thinking about and working towards now? Because, you know, it seems like um, there, there's maybe not so much of that thinking right now for obvious reasons, but um, anything that comes to mind is if you could wave a magic wand and make it happen in 2021, um, what would it be? Um, put you on the spot, but ask, you know, Greg or Beth, if you want you to jump in. I'll jump in with a, a, a bit of a digression and nerdy response. I would want everyone to read uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius and challenge everybody to at least once a year read a book by somebody who's dead. Because uh, conversations with the dead uh, are the way to really enrich and enliven your lives. Because everyone that's went before us has dealt with everything that we're dealing with. And they've all figured out a way to, to get through it. And I think we make the world better, not through sweeping political movements, um, but by each of us doing our part to be better ourselves. Awesome answer. I'm not going to tell you what I had in mind because it just sounded dumb compared to what you just said. So <laughs> Beth, do you want to say anything? Can I just say ditto um, and, and agree completely that, you know, it, it's my genuine hope that, that we can recognize that we can stop and listen and learn from each other um, collectively and that we, we together will, will be much better off when we do that. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better. Um, I guess to, to wrap up, uh, you know, we've got three Spartans here. And just for something fun and to antagonize any of the Wolverines who might be maybe helping with this podcast, Cameron, um, or, or listening down the road, uh, will Jim Harbaugh be the coach of the University of Michigan football team at this time next year? I hope so. <laughs> I hope he's, I hope he's coach for life. And what'd you say, Beth? I said, who cares? <laughs> I'm with Greg. It's, you know, when you got somebody that's this, this fun to beat, let's keep him around forever. So uh, I, Har Harbaugh should be coach for life and, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi should be a uh, leader of the House Democrats in the minority uh, as long as we're all alive. Excellent way to end it. Um, well, thanks again to each of you for joining, offering your insight and your expertise. Um, it's been great chatting with you and look forward to more of these in 2021. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us in the trenches. To learn more about the Michigan Freedom Fund, please visit our website at www.michiganfreedomfund.com and sign up for our weekly email, The Frontlines of Freedom. In the Trenches is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and SoundCloud. If you enjoy this podcast, please tell your friends. Thank you for listening.